Following a partner to a foreign country, new city or rural community can impact your career, network and access to continuing education. Brunch is a podcast by The Trailing Spouse Co, where I, your host, Joe Palmer, chat with trailing spouses from all over the world. Brunch is a chance to meet trailing spouses, hear their stories, their highs, their lows, as well as advice, tips and tricks to get the most out of your trailing spouse experience. In this bonus episode, I speak with Lucy Greenwood, who is a partner at the International Family Law Group based in London. Lucy has practiced family law for over 25 years, and most of her work has had an international dimension. Her firm has particular specialization in advising international clients about their family law rights around the breakdown of their personal relationships. This includes divorce, jurisdiction, pre- and post-nuptial agreements, financial and child arrangements upon divorce. They also advise on adoption, abduction and alternative family arrangements. We understand that relationship breakdown is challenging at the best of times, but can become even more challenging when there is an international element involved. The aim of this conversation was for me to ask Lucy anonymous questions that would give listeners an overview of some of the considerations to keep in mind when going through a relationship breakdown. Lucy has also kindly offered to meet with any of our network and you'll find her contact details wherever you're listening or watching this episode. Lucy, I am so pleased to have you with me today. We're doing a bit of a a different style to the to the podcast today so I'm very excited to have you here do you want to give us a bit of a an introduction to yourself what you do for a living and who you work for and then I can sort of give our listeners and viewers a bit of a uh, idea about how we're going to run our call today okay so I'm a family law solicitor I've um, been in practice for almost 30 years now, and for most of my career, I've had dealings with international families. In the past 17 years, I've really specialised in relation to international families. I work for a firm called the International Family Law Group. Um, We are specialised in assisting families that have got an international connection. Um, From our perspective, we can only advise in relation to English law, but we can put people in contact with other lawyers all around the world, depending on what other nationalities may apply to their particular situation. And we cover anything to do with relationship breakdown. So we don't do inheritance or immigration, but we do everything to do with relationship breakdown from prenups, postnups, um, to divorce, jurisdiction, finance, after a foreign divorce, also in relation to children matters, we do anything to do with child arrangements, relocation, abduction, adoption, all sorts. So anything to do really with um, any form of legal issue relating to family. Okay, so you will agree with me when you are listening to this episode that I have got someone with some pretty good street cred to literally run a rather challenging conversation, I think. And I wanted to sort of give um, people that are either listening or watching to this um, a bit of a, I guess, 
introduction to how Lucy and I came to be today. And it has been around a lot of the conversations that I have offline or in private conversations or in uh, emails or little anonymous messages and things that um, that we've received around the real challenges that people in an expat situation can find themselves in when there is a relationship breakdown and what that looks like from a legal standpoint, what that looks like for the trailing spouse who quite often might have some financial isolation on top of the physical isolation um, that might have be impacting the relationship breakdown and all of those things. So Lucy and I sort of talked about how do we do something like this because it's not sort of the thing that people want to go to a workshop or to say to their partner or their friends, oh, hey, I'm just popping down to this uh, this learning lunch with a divorce lawyer just out of interest's sake. And we found even the concept of a webinar or having a, a, a space where people could ask Lucy questions directly can also be a bit awkward and uncomfortable. So what led us to doing this this way was that um, I put a call out to our network and members and greater public to sort of ask if there were some burning questions that people would like me to ask on their behalf anonymously, which is um, very exciting slash not exciting that that's come to that, but exciting that I can almost be like a conduit to um, give you even a bit of a gateway into um, seeing what sort of things would happen and how a conversation might look with a divorce lawyer. So I guess, um, look, Lucy, Lucy is based in London. I'm based in Singapore. We're going to try and keep this as high level and not country specific so that it is um, the most useful to the most um, amount of people. We'll also try and keep it, um, I guess, time sensitive in the things that are a lot more general that aren't specific to January 2024, which is when we're recording this as well. So, um, Lucy, do you think there's anything else that I've missed as far as before we kick in? I know it's a sensitive subject. I know it's not something that people want to talk about, but actually knowledge is helpful, um, even if you never need to use it, which I hope you don't. But if you do need to use it, then you've got a little bit more empowerment by knowing something before you start. One hundred percent. Quite difficult, quite tragic mistakes if you launch in the wrong way when you've got an international family in particular. Yeah, and look, I, um, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I can see that this conversation is already going to digress a lot, so I'm going to try and stick to the script and to the questions that we <laughs> we have got. But um, I think that what is really important to just remember is that like talking to someone that is like appropriate for your specific situation is really important. And Lucy has already offered to, um, yes, be a hand to find who's going to be the most useful person for you to talk to um, regardless of where you're based. And so um, we will um, have like means and ways to connect in with Lucy attached to wherever you're either watching or listening to this episode. So thank you, Lucy. Um, I'm going to kick us off with some questions that we've sort of got grouped as like common issues and misconceptions about international family law. So I think um, that 
we'll just sort of fire off some of these sort of basic ones. So I think that's the best way to, to sort of go about it. So um, first question is around, must I divorce where I got married initially or where I entered a civil partnership? So it's really important that people know this because we commonly have conversations with people who say, look, we got married in some, maybe Singapore, and must we do it here? And we'll say, no, not necessarily. In fact, it's more likely that you can divorce where you're living at the moment or um, where you were born. Those two connections are the strongest and quite commonly um, divorce um, jurisdiction is based on residence or nationality. So it is unusual to have to get divorced in the country in which you married. Sometimes it is necessary, but it's quite uncommon. So it, don't think you've got to go back to the place you married and live for about two years um, rather than where you're living now. Uh, and it's important that you know that you're not restricted in that way. Okay. Well, there you go. Very interesting. Straight up. <laughs> so, but also going to that concept of where you were born, if you weren't married where you were born and you don't currently live in that country, that doesn't mean that you're needing to return for me, example, as an example to not Australia to get divorced. Different, different, um, different countries have different rules. So uh, typically in America, and I can't advise in other people's countries, this is just anecdotal information that I've gleaned along the way. But in America, typically, you have to be there for at least six months or a year. Um, in England, you don't have to be living here if you are what we call domiciled, which is a whole different uh, topic. But it's primarily based on where you live, unless you've decided that you want to live permanently somewhere else and never return to um, where you, you know, to England. So it's, it, it isn't easy to say where it will be, and it is, does require somebody to look at it quite carefully. But where there is an option, between two countries, it can be really significant to know what your rights are because you may do much better in one country compared to another. And if you've got that option, it's very important that you're aware of it. Okay. Well, I feel like I should ask then. So can you give me some examples of why you... Okay, so if we, for the sake of this whole conversation we are going to be talking, you're giving advice to me as a trailing spouse that is currently living in a country that I'm not from. So for me, what are some of the things that I would need to consider that I would do better? Like what are, what are the sorts of things or where you can do worse? What are those sorts of examples of things? So the main things are what sort of laws apply, how much you could claim financially. That's the most common reason why people choose where they divorce. So although you may have a choice of country where you can divorce, it's not actually the divorce that is the most important part. It's often the financial related claims. And in different parts of the world, very different claims apply. So in England, we're quite generous. We're known actually, sort of anecdotally, as um, the divorce capital of the world because we are very generous towards the weaker financial party. Um, and so you'll find that those with money want to avoid England and those without money will want to try and bring it, say, here if they've got a connection with England. And we are typically quite generous on spousal maintenance in a way that most countries aren't. Throughout Europe, they're pretty mean when it comes to spousal maintenance. Um, we are moving away from being quite as generous as we used to be, but it's still relatively more generous than most of Europe. 
um, and the levels of maintenance are also deemed to be quite um, generous here. The way in which the court deems what's fair based on your standard of living can actually be greater than in the country where you may be residing. But it very much depends on which country you're in and you would have to have advice from both to know which was best. There can also be things like time issues and, um, and just generally whether or not you're speaking your native language in the proceedings and that sort of thing, because it's quite scary going to court if you have to go to court or even just mediating on these matters if it's not your own language. Mm, that's so interesting. Okay, well, there you go. Straight off the back of question one, I think that that is a perfect example of why getting the advice by the sounds of it in at least two locations is really important before you start anything. And I would say very early on and don't tell your spouse that you are doing it because you need to you need to establish your favourite jurisdiction Sometimes you need to actually issue first before you tell them, which is very unpleasant. Um, but, you know, we'll take the hit for that and say we advised you to do that. And okay. it can be the difference between securing district jurisdiction or not. Not always yeah, that's... as clear cut as that is important. So you can't talk about things in advance if you've got a jurisdiction issue. You need to have a chat with the lawyer first. And then you can decide what you want to do. You don't have to opt for a country just because it gives you a bit more than you might get because there may be disadvantages to doing it for you. But at least you know your options. Yeah, that's so interesting. Okay. So do I then have to wait for a period post-separation to divorce? Right. So in England you don't, but in many countries you do. And in Singapore, in particular, you do have to wait quite a long time after you've separated before you can start proceedings in Singapore. So I think, I mean, I'm not a Singaporean lawyer, I always have to caveat that because I can't advise another law. Um, but it's commonly uh, about three years after separation before you can start proceedings in Singapore, which gives the other party who might have another country to issue in a great advantage because... Singapore can't be used even if you're living there at that point. You also have to live in Singapore for three years. Um, and I think unless you've got, um, national, you know, one of you is a national of Singapore or citizen of Singapore. So it's, it's quite a long period in that scenario. In other countries, often in Europe, there's a period of separation which then can move into divorce, but all of that's being reviewed. And I know Singaporean law is also being reviewed for divorce at the moment, I'm in contact with a Singapore lawyer in relation to those changes, which will come in later this year. Mm. Um, the idea behind the reforms in Singapore, as I understand it, is to make it um, less contentious to bring divorce proceedings rather than necessarily stopping that separation period. But I don't know enough about it at the moment. Yeah. Okay. Geez, that's a considerably long time. Okay. Which country, which, yeah, which country's laws will apply for divorce and finances? Right. In relation to, to divorce and finances, it's commonly connected to residence or nationality. Um, in Europe, it gets a bit more complicated because they have the they have different rules applying different laws against different aspects of the case 
Uh, and so, yes, it gets really quite complicated. And you could have a situation where you're dealing with maintenance elements or needs-based elements in one country, the divorce in another country, and the children in another country. So it's messy, uh, not insurmountable, but it's there's a lot to international family law which people just don't even consider. For children matters commonly, any issues about children, whether it's wanting to leave a country or sort out contact arrangements, that typically takes place in the country where the child lives. And child maintenance typically takes place in the country or is based on the situation where the child lives. Okay, that's interesting. That is interesting. Okay, so will my marriage or divorce be recognised anywhere in the world? So I can speak from an English perspective. Other countries may have different rules, but generally speaking, provided you marry legally and lawfully in the country where you did marry and that you weren't under duress to do so, our courts will ordinarily say that that's a valid marriage and will recognise it similarly with divorce, provided you've been involved in the proceedings and fully participated. Other countries may not be as receptive, but generally speaking... England is pretty good at taking into account other people's laws. So even if you marry, for example, under Sharia law, provided Sharia law was the law of the country in which you married and you complied with the rules that were required for you to marry there, then we would consider you married. Okay. We also sometimes help where um, we sometimes help even where people can't divorce. In their own country if they've got no other jurisdiction and that may feature um i think it's the philippines where they don't actually allow divorce um, and similarly with same-sex marriages commonly there are ways or sometimes there are ways to bring proceedings in england because many countries don't recognize same-sex marriage Oh, I see. So that's interesting. So even if you don't have that tie to England, that yes, yes, we you know we we really do try and help. Um, and there are situations where you've got no way of actually divorcing in any country, and then we will make an exception and consider whether we'll do it here. Okay, that's really interesting. There you go. Um, do religious marriage ceremonies count as legal marriages? So this sort of ties in with the whole idea of what I've just said in relation to the Sharia um, example. But we have a situation in England, and I'm sure we're not alone, where in certain cultures they will have a religious ceremony. Um, This is quite common amongst the Muslim community in England. And it won't be a legal ceremony. It will be a marriage in the eyes of um, their church, but it won't be in relation to um, the law. And that means they are not lawfully married. And that can have huge ramifications because the rights people have if they're married or not married are considerably different in England. They're not until real world, but they are in England. Mm, okay, and that's interesting. Okay, so do cohabitees have the same rights as married couples? Right. So that comes on from where I was, was with the religious um, uh, concept. So if you're not married, 
in some countries you can have a what we call de facto marriage and if you're not careful you can fall into that without even realizing that they have it so obviously i mean from australia you know that you have de facto marriage i think it's after two years um, and so if you're living together in England, you can live together forever and never have to think about claims other than the rights of property uh, between the two of you. So if you own something jointly, that would be deemed joint. If somebody's got it in their sole name, that's theirs. Um, and so from an adult spousal perspective, there's a huge difference between that and being able to claim spousal maintenance, a house for yourself and that sort of thing. Um, for child matters, it's less distinctive and there are ways to get money for a child, including capital claims in England. But it is important to know if you are in a de facto relationship. So you're coming from Australia, for example, and you are in a de facto relationship with fairly good claims in this in the uh, sad situation that you might separate. If you came to England, you wouldn't have those claims unless you brought proceedings in Australia. So this is another reason why you need to have advice if you've got an international family early on to ascertain whether the rights you think you have apply in the country where you're living, and whether you can still use your former rights or the right to, to separate in that other country. Mm, yeah, that's so interesting because I know that, that the de facto laws in Australia can be quite problematic um, in that, yeah, you say you if it, if it looks see smells like a marriage even if there hasn't been a, a formal ceremony and lodging of marriage certificate that you can well it, it's treated like a divorce isn't it and division of property and yeah amounts of money that yeah. you're paying in maintenance and all of these sorts of things okay that's really interesting um okay we have um, yeah i mean in the firm we have got um, a couple, actually, of Australian qualified lawyers. We don't practice Australian law, but we do have a lot of connection with Australia and we do a lot of Australian work. Mm, okay. Well, that's also good to know. There you go for any of our Australian listeners. <laughs> um, am I allowed to take the children home with me to my home country? And I wanted to clarify with this question, I guess, that you can interpret how I guess maybe you see most regularly with this, but um, I, when I saw this question, I was wondering if this is like during divorce sort of proceedings or is this prior to, like when do you sort of see with the, the leaving with kids okay. moving? Okay, so as parents, you've both got parental responsibility in most countries. Um, you would check locally because it would be the local to determine this if you can't agree it. Um, check what rights both of you have over the children locally. It is commonly applied that both people have, both parents have parental responsibility or custody rights. If they have got those custody or parental responsibility rights, then you cannot leave the country without their consent. Whether you're married or unmarried, in a, you know, still married, divorced, um, obviously during a marriage is usually less of a concern because you may regularly go for holidays and things, or you may decide that that's right for your family together. But it but it commonly arises when parties are thinking of separating or have separated. And you often find that one parent, understandably, particularly if you're a long way away from the country they may be moving to, will resist that application. And you then have to bring what we call relocation proceedings, either 
basically in the country where you are um, habitually resident and that's really the way you're living for most people. There are very terrible obvious habitual residents, but for most people it's fairly obvious. If you've moved sticks and moved somewhere and if they are with children, then you to be deemed to have to deal with it in the country and have another agreement or an order to move. And it can be quite a difficult process. And depending on how the particular country views the needs of the child to see both parents regularly, which is obviously increasing and is of increasing importance and has changed a lot since I was first practicing. It is quite a difficult application to make if it isn't agreed. The sorts of things that can help are if you can't stay in a country because of immigration status, perhaps, um, you haven't got money, uh, you could have, you know, get a job in another country, you can't work in the country you're in. Those sorts of things, as well as obviously primarily what's best for the children, are important factors. The court's overriding concern in these matters usually is what's best for the children. So they are quite complicated proceedings. Um, but you know, some people agree to do this, some people don't. Sadly, commonly, if it's going to cost them a lot less in divorce for the party to move to a particular country where they can support themselves, that can sadly be quite a big factor in things, although they wouldn't put it that way necessarily. Mm. But it's it's difficult. It's a very difficult application. And for example, Australia to England can't get further away, and the time zones and all of those things make a huge difference. Plus, it's a very big cultural shock for the children sometimes if they've been brought up in another country completely. So it's not to be taken lightly. And certainly, I think the the point of, of this particular question really was to say, don't do it. Don't just go because you could find yourself immediately on the back of an abduction claim, which can mean that you're brought straight back to do it properly. It's There are some defences to child abduction, um, and again, that's a very specialist area. And if you are wanting to leave a country as well as a spouse or a partner, then I would really strongly recommend you have a chat with a local lawyer where you're living to ascertain what you need to do. And you, there are certain things you can do which can put you in a better situation to, to actually make that application. So getting early advice, and that goes for everything that I'm talking about, is really important. Even before you move country, it can be helpful to just know what to expect should something happen there. And you know, we can offer an hour or so consultation to talk that through with you. So that even if you never need to do it, you've got some knowledge and the sorts of questions that you would need to ask in that scenario. Sometimes people do agreements before they leave one country, either in finances like prenups and postnups, um, or with children. Sometimes you might have an agreement that in the event of separation, one of you will come home. Now, those agreements can be reneged on for children. Um, because situations change and no country's policy that I'm aware of overrides the right to look into children's arrangements at any time because that would be against public policy for the children's rights. Maybe some, but I can't think of one to hand. Um, obviously, there are different laws, for, for example, um, laws in England or Asia may be very different, from example, laws in Syria 
countries where under their religious belief the father has considerably greater rights than the uh, than other than other fathers in other countries and there are rules as to when a child might go and live with their father at a certain age for example so it's very important particularly if you're moving from one country to another one with a very different cultural background or religious background to just consider whether or not your situation will change and how it will change for you and your children. Mm, that's interesting. And I guess that really is demonstrated by what you were saying earlier, is that the anything that's to do with the kids itself is is where the kids are living at the time. So you want to make sure that you're checking with wherever you're currently located before you're doing anything as far as moving kids around the place. Okay, so this is an interesting one because I was just thinking this while you were talking about the the pre and postnups. Are pre prenups or postnups binding anywhere in the world, and how can they help? They're not binding anywhere in the world. Um, many countries they are binding. In England, they're not binding, but they have very strong evidential weight, provided they're entered into freely with full disclosure, full knowledge of anything that's relevant, um, that it's done in good time, that you've had independent legal advice. In some countries, you don't need those criteria for it to be binding. Um, Australia has binding BFAs, as they call them, binding financial arrangements. And they can be a really useful tool, particularly if you're moving country, to ascertain where you want the divorce and finances to be sorted out. And also to set out what happens so that you've got that ability to just you know, go through what your agreement says in relation to sharing capital. Sometimes maintenance is dealt with in them, but not commonly. Generally speaking, it's to do with the larger capital issues. So, for example, if one of you has a huge inheritance or, or a significant inheritance or is likely to come into some, you may agree that you want to ring fence that asset from any division. And that would sometimes occur in some countries automatically but not always um, and in England uh, we have a situation where if there's not enough in the marital pot to meet what our courts deem to be reasonable needs then we can dip into premarital inherited assets any assets basically to help the family so that's something that a lot of people aren't aware of about England and they can be caught you know quite worryingly about how they think they've sorted their finances out and they haven't. The other thing to remember with England in particular is if you have entered into a marital agreement in another country and you've just done it a couple of days before the wedding, uh, before a notary, unless that's your sort of general knowledge of how things are done and you're brought up to think that that's how it's done and fully understand what those different types of arrangements can mean, it is likely that an English court will say, well, look, I can see you did do this, but you didn't know this, you didn't know that, therefore we're not going to take any notice of it. Now, that can be a real shock to many people who think that they've ring-fenced a lot of assets, um, which doesn't apply when it comes to having a look at it in England. We only practice English law. Uh, we only apply English law. Other countries actually literally apply another country's law by getting expert evidence from somebody in that country and 
it's never really applied quite as we know it to be applied when English law is applied in another country by a lawyer or a court that doesn't do English law. So it's always better to use somebody from that country, if you can, to bring the proceedings if you want to rely on that particular jurisdiction. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Right. Um, Can I get a share of my spouse's pension? Again, in England you can, but commonly you have to use a local order for a pension, which can cause problems. So you might have a Canadian family or an Australian superannuation. I'm doing one at the moment with a superannuation in it. And you would need to not only get your um, order, financial order in England, if you were making an English divorce procedure, you would also have to have an agreement in your financial order in England to say that you're co- you're both cooperate in sharing the BFA, I'm sorry, not the BFA, superannuation in Australia. And the uh, order would then need to be registered in Australia and applied so that the people that are dealing with the superannuation, the, the uh, companies that have them, will recognise the order. Similarly, if you have an English pension and you're living abroad, then you have to get an English pension sharing order, which can be done. um, And there are various scenarios where it can be done. It's not as easy as it used to be since Brexit, but it is possible in some cases if you've still got some connection with England. And that's another process here. So often if you have got a pension abroad and you've got enough capital to offset using that pension, it can be sensible to use local assets to do it and then, you know, say that you've taken into account sharing the pension, but you're going to give this amount of capital instead because pensions in particular can be a bit difficult to enforce. Similarly, sometimes with property, uh, because property laws vary very differently around the world. So again, unless you're in the country where you're sharing the property, you are going to find it harder to enforce some things. So that's really interesting, I think, particularly for trailing spouses in that for a lot of people that they're either two-year stint or 10-year stint or 20-year stint has meant that they're not in the workforce whatsoever. And so there is no pension or, say, for Australian superannuation or any sort of savings for later in life. And then, you know, you get divorced in your 40s or your 50s or your 60s and, um then there is no pension sitting there with your own sort of name tag on it. So that's really interesting as well. So certainly in England and probably other countries, there are very many tax benefits to pensions, which makes them more valuable than just the equivalent capital. So you have to have an idea of what it's really worth, not just its face value worth. Um, And we commonly share pensions on the basis of equality of income and retirement. That's under debate at the moment, but um, at the moment we are looking carefully. And there's a big um, campaign at the moment in England for people to take their pensions into account in divorce because many people used to overlook them or just say, oh, I'll have 30K in lieu of that or whatever, um, and find that they lost out considerably by doing that. So you need advice on that too. Yeah. Ideally, obviously. Yeah. You know, all these just how much, yeah, how much more money they can be worth. But it is important, and people have lost lots of money if they from not looking at their pensions carefully on divorce. Mm. Mm. 
Okay. Can orders be made against assets held in other countries? So in England, yes. In many countries, no. Um, so in England, we can make orders against pensions in other countries um, and property in other countries, but the enforceability of those orders may be the problem. So you need to check with a lawyer in that other country where the property or pension is held to see what you've got to do to enforce it and whether you can enforce it. Hence the point I made about superannuation having something in there in the order to say that you're going to get this um, registered and sorted out through an Australian in your okay. So, so in, can well, can you, oh, sorry, I was going to say, can you give us a quick definition in layman's terms what orders are in the first? I should have actually asked that straight after the oh, question. So an order is the final order. Well, when I'm talking about orders in this context, obviously there can be other orders along the way, but a final order which sets out exactly what you need to do when you have divorced and how you're going to share your assets and which ones are going to be shared, which ones aren't. In England, we can do that um, by just sharing um, literally equally, or we can adjust the, the ownership of property so we can actually pass one property to another person or give them more of a share than they have at the moment um, and all sorts of things in relation to that. And this is what the order says. And then ultimately, you may have spousal maintenance, you may have child maintenance in there. And ultimately, it will say when that ends, when that responsibility ends, then certain things may drop off sooner. So once you've sorted out your capital assets, that would mean you can't come back for more capital assets. Um, if you've got children and spousal maintenance orders, they may go on until the children finish tertiary education. For spousal maintenance, it might be until you can see that that other spouse is going to be able to get back into the workforce and earn enough to live on. So this is the purpose of the order, and it's a very important document. So we can make orders against property in other countries, and where it's jointly held, it's likely to be enforceable, because in most situations with joint property, one of, you've both got the right to sell or transfer that property. Where it's held in one other person's name and we're suggesting it's transferred to somebody, that can be problematic. And you would really, really need local advice as to whether that is even possible to enforce. If it wasn't possible to enforce, we'd look to offset again with other assets to make up the, the problems we might have in trying to enforce a property sale, transfer or a pension in that country. Okay. In other countries, they don't even make orders against other assets in other in other parts of the world. So we have a scenario, like probably coming on to that soon, we have a scenario in England, and I think Singapore also have it, because it's based on loosely based on same English law um, when it comes to looking at finances. It's possible to bring an application after a final order in a foreign country. So if, for example, the pension couldn't be dealt with in that country because it's in England, or if there's a property that was in England that couldn't be dealt with, you can sometimes bring a claim, provided you've got enough connection with England, to arrange for that to be looked at by our courts. Again, you know, all of this is cumbersome, um, and if there's a better way to do it by offsetting, people try to do it that way or are encouraged to do it that way if they know about it. Um, but it is sometimes possible to then look at the local assets in England um, in a different way. But that's not possible in many countries. So 
uh, lots of countries, the final order, wherever it's made, is the final order, uh, unless you are able to bring local proceedings in relation to our property. Mm. Okay. Right. Okay. I'm so... making this sound very complicated. It is very complicated. But at the same time, there are routes through for everybody. So I'm, by talking about it generally, it sounds a bit scary. But actually, what I'm saying is every case is different. And if you speak to an international family law, you will find a route or see what's best for you. You may have options, you may not have options, but at least you know the situation. And it will be much more tailored to your scenario than this very broad, sort of scary sounding thing that around the world there's different laws. I think all I want to get across today is that there are lots of different laws around the country and it's best to be informed, preferably before you move. But even if if you can't do that, preferably before you separate. That's mm. my main message. Mm. I think that you, you just... Yeah, I think it's just been reiterating to me is that the, the the really important thing is to be getting advice both where you're physically located, where home is, and to be sort of almost looking and cherry-picking where it's going to be the best option for you. And you said that up some front. People, for some people where they've been travelling a lot or they have different nationalities from where they're living at the moment, you can have different jurisdictions that can apply it might be three jurisdictions or more sometimes so you know there is it can be complicated but it's very much um, something that the individual needs to talk to an international family lawyer about and early on I mean anything to do with law seeing somebody early on is always going to be better and I'm a great believer in prevention being better than cure and um, so if you can get advice to sort of know what to, to expect then that can be helpful also um, for things like child abduction it's come on so far the number of clients now you say to me I know I can't take just take the children whereas when I was practicing 10 20 years ago they wouldn't have a clue so it's important to get this information out there so that people are aware of the sorts of issues that can arise. They don't always. Uh, sometimes it can be sorted quite you know, sensibly and quickly. Um, but it is important to know of these sorts of problems because inadvertently you can do something that can really be damaging to the, your potential case going forward. And, and vice versa, there are things you can do to plan to make things better for when and if things. Mm. So then if like upon divorce or dissolution, is a same-sex marriage or civil partnership treated in the same way as a heterosexual marriage? In England it is. In many countries it is now. But obviously, I mean, living in Singapore, you probably know that it's only recently become legal um, for men to be homosexual in um, Singapore. And therefore, there is no same-sex marriage or civil partnership in Singapore yet. That may change. Similarly, in many other countries, it's either illegal or there isn't such provision. So no is the answer. And civil partnerships, even if it's heterosexual, civil partnerships aren't always treated the same in different countries because they mean different things in different countries. So unlike marriage, which is quite an obvious um, and known um, union, civil partnership can be different in different countries, just like de facto relationships and the way they're treated can be different in different countries. So it's, again, important you know, to obviously get local advice and to speak to somebody about 
your rights are. And like I mentioned earlier, if you're in a country where you just can't get divorced and neither of you have a connection to another country where you would be able to get divorced if you're in a same-sex marriage, then also just talk to um, an English lawyer to see if there's any way around getting it done here. Mm. That's so interesting. Okay. So should you sort of touched on this, but this is a very explicit, should, explicit question, but should I tell my spouse that I intend to get divorced? Right, this is a horrible thing um, and it is very important, sadly. If you have to, and it used to be worse before Brexit in England, so before Brexit in England, throughout Europe, whoever issued first in time secured jurisdiction. So there was a race. So in addition to all the pressures that you have about choosing where you divorce, you also had to get on with it sometimes much sooner than perhaps you were even ready to do. Um, and you couldn't tell your spouse in advance because if they got wind of it, they would issue in the other country and you could do very badly indeed. It could be a huge difference in what would happen financially for you. Now the test is more about where you are most connected in, in most situations, but it never hurts to be the first in time for a number of reasons. So it is still better not to talk about where you're going to do it and who's going to do it before you've actually decided and heard advice as to where is best for you. We always try to secure a jurisdiction in the favoured country before we advise people to tell their partners. I have had situations where they've wanted to issue the proceedings, get the service underway and tell them before they actually get the proceedings. But to be honest, it doesn't make much difference by that time because you've done the issuing and it's probably safer not to do that even. Um, if you're in the same country, there's not another country involved, um, you haven't got the issue of determining whether or not you can do it here or there, then of course you could talk to your spouse. And of course you can talk about mediation and all of those things you want to talk about when you're in a normal scenario of wanting to separate. And, you know, that's a very different situation, but you can't offer to mediate when you haven't if you have got a choice of jurisdiction until you've secured your jurisdiction. We still encourage all sorts of other forms of settlement rather than litigation, but you sometimes just have to do that part before you get to the stage where you suggest coming round the table to try and sort things out. Okay, that's great advice there. Okay, I've got one that's quite um quite specific to Singapore. I'll I'll read it out and we can sort of tweak it so to to suit. Um, I got married in Singapore with no prenup. What are my rights as a permanent resident? I have a three-year-old child and I'm pregnant and not currently working. Um, my, like, Can I ask him to leave the house before completing the divorce papers? What are the rights of my children? There's okay, a fair so bit of other bits and pieces in there. It mightn't matter where they married. I don't know what their nationalities are. That would be a very big question to ask. Um, they've got children, so obviously need to ascertain what the rights would be in Singapore for the child and who's got custody rights over the child. I suspect they both have. So there would need to be a discussion about what uh, sorts of orders, if necessary, 
could be made for the child and who has primary care of the child or custody of the child, whether they can have sole custody um, or whether it would always be a joint custody. I'm afraid I don't know enough about Singapore and children to know that, but a Singaporean lawyer would be able to help in relation to that. Um, leaving the house, I would say, and again, this is sort of, um, you know, it's not, it's not um, advice, but because there is a long period before you can actually divorce in Singapore, I should imagine there are quite good orders for interim arrangements and things that you can do either to get somebody out of the house or to get interim maintenance and that sort of thing. But you really, I'm afraid for this one, you really do need to speak to a Singaporean lawyer unless you have got a connection to England or another country, in which case you may also want to speak to a lawyer in that country. But the children issues will be dealt with in Singapore. Okay. Thank you. Listener, if you're listening, I mean, person to write that in, then that's some good advice in this one. Um, here's another one that I will need a bit of defining of terms in here, but is it possible to reverse a decree absolute obtained in the UK along with its reasons if the divorce applicant maliciously applies and acquired it while the other party was overseas using an inactive postal address? Okay, so can you please fill me in first on what a degree absolute is? <laughs> So it's the final order of divorce. It's not necessarily finances, it's the divorce. So they are divorced with a decree of absolute in England. It's now called the final order, which is a little bit clearer um, in layman's terms. And the whole, the whole divorce process has completely changed in England in the past year or so. So it's very different these days in the terminology that's used and the way you go about divorcing. Prior to the reforms that came in in April last year, the year before last maybe, um, it was necessary to cite the particulars. So you'd say whether it was unreasonable behaviour um, and all sorts of nasty things like that. We've got rid of all of that now. This um, question arises using terminology that's old terminology and suggesting that various things were said that weren't true, which does suggest it's the old style. So I'd need to probably find out more about that situation. It would be unusual to get a divorce in England without proving that somebody had been served with papers. So because if you don't hear from somebody, you have to do an application to court to deem service. Um, so that may have happened, I don't know, in this situation. But I think it's, you know, if they want to talk to me, they can. But I also want to know why they want to undo the divorce. Uh, because some, whilst it might seem wrong the way it's been brought about. Um, I also would need to know why it's important that it's being looked at to be undone and whether in fact it's worth doing it or whether it's going to cause more problems. Um, as I've said at the beginning of this, England is usually quite a popular jurisdiction to get divorced in. So there may actually be benefits of having a divorce in England that this person doesn't know about. But I simply don't know enough about it. So would someone want to undo a divorce in order to do a divorce in another country? Is this what you're sort of talking about, that they could have done better elsewhere? Yes, possibly. It's very hard to undo a divorce unless something's gone very So um, it would be important to know more about this particular situation. Obviously, courts like to make final orders and for them to be final. 
So you've got to have a very good reason to undo what is on the face of it a fine order. That doesn't say that doesn't mean it doesn't happen sometimes. There was a there was a scenario not long ago um, where it was very difficult to divorce in Italy because it's a very you know Catholic country it takes a long time, a bit like Ireland, and. There was a scenario where there were a huge number of divorces being made from Italy to one particular quite um, local court, uh, not in London or anywhere, and a very, very proficient clerk at the court spotted that on a lot of them there was the same postal address in England for the party to be served. And what was happening was they were using this same address and the police had to go along to this address to see what was happening. And they discovered that it was a postal post box, basically. It was just a, you know, like you have in, in flats and things. So obviously there couldn't be, you know, 60 families or however many it was living in this particular place. And so all of those were nullified, you know, the whole, the whole thing. It must have caused absolute disaster, quite frankly, to those families and what they thought they had settled. But, the, you know, obviously that was not law. Um, so there are situations, but they're quite extreme and they're quite rare. And you would certainly have to prove that you really had no notice of the proceedings whatsoever um, to have a chance of actually undoing this particular scenario. But as I say, I want to know why they want to do that before, um, you know, launching into whether it was right or wrong that they got a divorce that way. Okay, Lucy, I am positive that for people that are in this sort of situation or headspace that they are going to have plenty more questions. But I have found this thoroughly, thoroughly um, interesting and I feel a bit more sort of empowered to at least whenever, because, you know, this sort of conversation, I hate to say, comes up relatively regularly. It's, it's um, knowing the things that are important to know about and what isn't. And sometimes you just don't even think about some of the things. Even now, when I'm talking to lawyers in other countries, they say, well, no, we can't do that here. Or, oh, you have to have this here. And you think, I'd never have even dreamt that that was, you know, that that was something that I had to think about. And so it is important to be informed. Doesn't mean you have to get divorced. And sometimes people just want to know what if. And that can be a very sensible conversation to have. Mm. And I think that you've just put a really good example forward there of why it's really important to not just see a family lawyer, but to talk to an international family lawyer, if for the sole purpose, I'm assuming that your colleagues around the world are as well networked as you are, and that they are constantly staying on top of those sorts of things. And I feel that's a risk if you're going to someone that is not with an international background, that that can be problematic. So you may find that a lawyer doesn't know, or certainly pre-Brexit didn't know about the first-in-time rule, for example. They just write normally and say, oh, you know, Mrs. So-and-so is sad because Mr. So-and-so and she is divorcing. You know, let's talk about this. I'll send you a draft petition. And then Mr. So-and-so, and I've had this, goes off with issues in another country in the meantime. And, of course, that lawyer is then negligent, really, because they should never have got the client to write in those terms before they'd secure jurisdiction. Um, children matters, you know, some people will say, yes, yeah, of course you can go home, and then you find that you're not allowed to go home and you want to get arrested at the airport. Well, hopefully not so bad, but you will have your passports and things taken away from you 
and that sort of thing. I mean, it's not pleasant, but also you're then on the back foot if you come back and say you want to move there. So, you know, just it's just important to get some advice, that's all. It's really all I want to say in relation to today and to be aware of some of the things that people just don't even think about when they relocate. And if you're relocating regularly to different countries, your laws, the sorry, the family law rules and laws or any laws will change. It won't stay with the ones that you were made, you know, brought up with. They will change in accordance with the country you're living in. And funnily enough, people just don't think that way in terms of you know, family law. Mm. And not only that they change from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but they change over time. Like you said, you've just had a huge upheaval in the last 12 months in the whole of England as how you, as far as how you deal with well, divorce. That same thing's happening in Singapore, and I'm actually in touch with a Singapore family lawyer at the moment with a view to doing an article with her about those changes and perhaps, you know, talking about how we found the changes here as well. So there's a lot happening and things are changing quite quickly in relation to families generally because families are changing and the world's changing and many of our laws are based on very traditional style families, whatever that might be in that country. Mm. And people are evolving and they're moving around much more um, and therefore they need to have a more sort of global view of how they deal with things and governments have to also adapt to make things more palatable and more acceptable to people if they're going to live in those countries because some of the laws in other in particular countries can be very different to those that you're used to and that puts people off sometimes moving there when they want them to come in and grow the economy mm, so it's all related so to political social change over time um, when I started as I said at the beginning of this relocation if you had a father coming in about stopping somebody going to America or Australia or Europe, it, we would literally say to them, don't bother because you won't get it. These days, very different because fathers are equally involved in the care of the children and it's recognised that the children have a right to see both parents. So if you are talking or thinking about moving, it's important you also think about how you retain that communication with the other parent sufficiently for the child to know them properly um, mm. and that gets harder with very big distances but it's still possible sometimes I had one family that did six months in Australia six months in England they had quite a lot of money they were able to actually arrange that until the child was quite old I mean that's unusual um, but you know there are ways around these things sometimes if you're creative in you know parents um, and both want the best for the children Lucy, thank you so much. I'm like I said, I'm positive that this has really answered some some burning questions for a lot of people listening to this. So I really appreciate it. And as I said, I'll put your contact details and you've been very generous to <laughs> say that you're happy to chat with anyone regardless of where their jurisdiction is. So thank you so much for that. I mean, thank you and your advice in relation to anyone that's got a connection to England. But I may know somebody that I'll put you in touch with in a country that you have connections with if it's not England. I'm so happy to talk to anybody that has got English to talk. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Lucy. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Brunch by the Trailing Spouse Co. If you're a trailing spouse anywhere in the world, join us. 
We're a place that you will find other like-minded professional trailing spouses, as well as training, education, and employment opportunities. Head to thetrailingspouse.co and connect with our network. And if you'd like to join me for brunch, you'll find a link on the website to register your interest for a chat. At The Trailing Spouse Co., we are passionate about ensuring that you are connected, your mind is stimulated, and that you're always learning.